Hi, I'm Michael Woods, Chief Scientist at the Asian Turfgrass Center, and this is another ATC Double Cut, where I talk about some of the content on the ATC blog and give it a second discussion, a double cut, where I've previously written about it, and now I'm going to talk about it a little bit. This week, I'm in Bangkok, and I did some work on some blog posts, but I didn't get any thing new posted. So this week I'm going to talk about one of the top posts, one of the classic posts on the blog that's gotten a lot of views. I'll tell you a little bit, before I go into that, I'll tell you some of the things that I am working on. I did some calculations related to nutrient levels in the soil in the spring and in the autumn. Because Larry Stowell from Pace Turf had asked a question. He he asked in a poll on Twitter if people, if turfgrass managers who follow that account, he was asking, do you typically do soil testing in the spring? Do you do soil testing in the autumn? Or do you do soil testing in both spring and autumn? And I thought that's a very interesting question. I I typically like to do in autumn, but as I thought about it more, I realized that what I really like to do is test when the soil, um, what I mean is this will vary depending on where you are in the world. Um, so, so I thought autumn is not the perfect answer, uh, but to try to generalize it, I thought, let me think about what I'm really trying to accomplish. And as I did that, I realized that what I'm really trying to accomplish is to test when the soil nutrient levels are at the lowest level that they are throughout the year. And in a, in certain, uh, let's, say, let's say in temperate regions that are not salt affected, you are going to typically have your lowest nutrient levels in the autumn. And then they go up over the winter. And in the spring, you'll have higher nutrient levels generally because the grass wasn't growing, but some nutrients will be released from mineral forms in the soil. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail about tropical regions or um, places that are salt affected, but I think I'll make some calculations about this and share later. Anyway, I was working on that a bit this week, looking at some of my data from my research at Cornell University when I was testing a sand root zone throughout the year and I did that for multiple years and looked at what happened when potassium fertilizer was applied and was not applied but in addition to doing the soil test for potassium i also have data for other nutrients so i looked up on an old hard drive an old folder from almost 20 years ago the data from uh 2002 and 2003 and 2004 and I was looking at that so that was interesting but whenever I'm making calculations usually I want to check them and I have to format the data and and think about what I'm doing so I I had other urgent things to do so I set that aside and it didn't become a blog post but it's something that's in progress and for Pace Turf members you'll have seen Larry summarized his recommendations in the PACE update sent last week. And um, I believe that's in the members only section of the PACE Turf website. So that's really interesting. Larry and I had some private discussion about that too. And, and I think it's important for anybody that's doing soil testing to um, be aware about sampling method and also sampling timing. So that's good. In fact, for those of you watching this 
uh, you can see in the background, I've got some soil samples drying on the floor. Um, I visited a whole bunch of golf courses this past week and collected a lot of samples as part of a cool data collection project I'm doing. And I'm sure that I'll be writing a lot about that in the upcoming months. What else did I do? Oh, I wrote an article for, for my column in, in Japan. That's the uh, 167th month now that I've submitted an article for Golf Course Seminar Magazine. And this month I wrote about Winston Mirmo's research, uh, his master's thesis at Clemson University, which I think is fascinating because it goes against everything that I thought. Um, and so I wrote in that article that uh, I always thought that we can't walk on, on frosted turf. We can't put any kind of traffic on frosted turf. And in Mirmo's thesis, which is about the effect of autumn potassium and winter traffic on bent grass turf, and this was done in South Carolina, anytime the temperatures were below freezing, anytime the temperatures were at freezing or lower, and they did this for two winters in a row, they deliberately rolled the turf at 8 a.m. in the morning if the temperature was at freezing or below. And you might be surprised to find out that by spring, as the temperatures warmed in the spring, you couldn't tell a difference. There wasn't a quality difference between the turf that had received that traffic and the turf that did not receive the traffic, the turf that was protected from that traffic. I think that's fascinating to have that research that shows this. And the the potassium had no effect, but the rolling did have an effect in terms of it damaged the turf a bit in the winter, putting traffic on turf that is growing slowly and that's frozen. It damages it a bit, but for creeping bent grass, at least in that particular soil, as the temperatures warmed in the spring, the turf came right back to the same quality as the turf that, that was not trafficked. This is something that I observed when I was a golf course superintendent in Japan, when I was so opposed at the start of the winter to any traffic being allowed on the turf. And I was contacted by the owner who told me that no matter what I thought, the golfers were still going to play. And it turned out that although there was a bit of damage by March, as the temperatures warmed after winter, the turf went right back to the same quality. So it's something that I observed when I was a golf course superintendent. I learned something then. I've written about it on my blog, of course, and some of you will have seen that. Like, uh, I think I've got one, how to lose 120 million yen with frost delays or something like that. Because for, for golf courses that are a for-profit enterprise, it certainly makes sense to allow golfers to play if they want to pay the money and if they're not causing permanent damage to the turf. So that was interesting. That was, that was an article I wrote. So I got that done. And then I made some more calculations. This one was about something I've mentioned before about trying to figure out when potassium fertilizer is required because we might have a situation where the sand, the mineral forms of potassium in the sand can be released at a rate that's sufficient to supply all that the grass can use. 
And if you only look at soil test results, you can't quite identify that. And I thought maybe I can work through some of these calculations because I got some new data from some golf courses in Japan this past week about their soil test results, about the amount of nitrogen and potassium that they'd applied for the past six years or so. And I was going to try to tease out the expected change in potassium based on how much the grass grew and based on how much potassium fertilizer was applied. I w you, you could expect that there would be a certain amount of, of change in soil potassium over time if, if you know how much the grass could have grown, which means you know how much potassium the grass could have used. And if you know how much potassium was applied, you can do a mass balance and you can try to figure that out. So I worked through some of those calculations thinking that I can show a comparison between expected change in soil potassium and actual change in soil potassium. And that also is something that required some calculation. And as I worked through the calculation, I realized I'm not going to get this to the point that I can do a blog post about it. So I saved those scripts that were making those calculations and, and leave that on the list of things that I'm going to be talking about again another time. And so I'm getting to the post that I'm going to talk about today, which is one of my favorites. It's in the, it's in the classic uh, top post list on my website. And the specific one that I'm going to talk about is called Two Similar Approaches to Turf Grass Nutrition with One Notable Difference. And I will put a direct link to this post I will put a direct link to this post on my in the description here so you can see um, let's see yeah two similar approaches to turf grass nutrition with one notable difference so I, I will put a I will put a direct link to this post so that you can see it and it, it's talking about MLSN it's talking about two similar approaches so one of these approaches is MLSN. The other approach is precision fertilization as described by STERF, the Scandinavian Turfgrass and Environmental Research Foundation. And this is, is describing an extensive research project that was led by Tom Erickson. And it, it looks at supplying nutrients to the grass at the same rate in which the grass uses those nutrients. Uh, compared to MLSN, which partly does that, but also looks at the soil too. But before I, before I discuss that, I want to play a clip. If this works, I'm going to play a clip from the Talking Greenkeeper podcast that came out where John Jacob and Joe Galati talked about MLSN and talked about fertilizer and and I've queued up a clip here that for me was one of the most interesting parts of the very excellent podcast. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the description also. But they they were talking about turf grass nutrition and soil testing and fertilizer recommendations and fertilizer applications and 
whether it made sense to them or not, and then how with MLSN it, it all of a sudden clicked. So let me play this where it's John Jacob talking primarily, and he's explaining how turfgrass nutrition and soil testing and fertilizer recommendations didn't really make sense to him for a while. And then when he found out about MLSN, it clicked. I'll play this and then I'm going to explain how that's related to this post that I'm going to discuss. Yeah, I, I, I would say the one smart thing, I never hired a, uh, uh, a sales rep to do my soils test. I refused to do that. I, I always paid somebody well and said, just do this and write my nutrient plan. But um, I still never understood where he got from, you know, you know, you know, 80% calcium and then told me to put down 15 pounds of gypsum per, per acre per year or whatever the hell. Um, I just never understood that conversion. I took soil classes, obviously, in school, but it just didn't make sense to me. And meanwhile, every time I put down gypsum, you know, you didn't see a response. Um, no. I, you know, working for Paul for a year, he loved potassium. We'd put down 12 right. pounds of K yeah. per thousand every year. <laughs> We had to do it. Like, you yeah. know, it's a summer stress. It's going to make the plant more turgid. You got to get it out there. We got to water. And it was just, you know, we were constantly dumping potassium on the greens. And I was like, I get Paul knows what he's doing. I mean, he, he gets paid a ton of money. He has a great position. You know, everybody respects him. Yeah, this is what you have to do, right? Yeah. Um, but I didn't, other than just doing it because he did it. And then, um, you know, I think MLS was when I started thinking about, you know, started critically thinking. You know, I started analyzing my after you know, I became a superintendent in 05, so for a while I was just trying to run Paul's program the best I could because it worked. Yeah, right? yeah. But, I mean, but after a yeah. while you start thinking like, well, why am I mowing fairways five days a week? Because they look good, right? But I don't need to. Yeah. Uh, so it was always those things. So I started critically thinking about everything I was doing and it got to the soils and you know, I think that cross paths was when I started reading about Micah's stuff and um, I was just like, wow, this it made sense to me you know, base cation saturation ratio, just never, I never computed it. It just didn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm like me, you know, if I put down too much of this, it's going to throw this out of bounds and this stupid little plant notices the difference. And, but yet I don't see it in how it's performing and the grass is green still. Like it just, no matter how much of the other than N, P, and K and really even just other than N, I never saw a result. Like it was just, you were doing it because that's what everybody told you to do. And you relying on the experts that you, you know, and which is fine. We need to rely on other people in our business, but it never made sense to me. And MLS, and the first time I read the, uh, the, the, the cheat sheet wasn't out then, but um, I'm trying to think. It was probably Larry's. It might have been. It was, on, it was on the big thing. Turf. It was definitely on pace turf, and it yeah. just it just made sense. It was just like the guys just, minds. Just you know, the grass just needs this much amount, and it, it it's it made sense to what I you know. I, no, I, I would say the one smart thing I did, never hired. All right, there we go. So, uh, I hope Joe and John don't mind that I use that clip, but I thought that was really interesting to find out that it. That, that turfgrass nutrition didn't really click for them, that it didn't really make so much sense until they heard about MLSN and then all of a sudden it made sense. And so um, that that's something that uh, I hadn't really thought of before, that, that this wouldn't make sense to people. Um, but I'm, I'm so gratified to know that MLSN does make sense. So in this blog post, I want to explain why I think MLSN makes sense and also why the precision fertilization approach of STRF makes sense.
And it's because this is based on not some fantasy level of theoretical ideal levels in the soil that everybody who's managed turf has has found that that isn't really the case because you can supposedly be low in calcium you add calcium nothing happens you can have perfect turf you test it it says it's low in phosphorus so then you're like well wait a second how can my turf be perfect and it's low in phosphorus you get so much of this conflicting type of um, advice if you do things in a traditional way and mlsn is not quite a traditional way the precision fertilization approach of stirf is not quite a traditional way but they are incredibly effective and they're logical and i took some quotes from the precision fertilization from theory to practice document which is written by tom erickson and co-authors and it's available from the stirf website which i put a link to post and here are some quotes that I have, and I'm going to read a few of them, and you'll realize that this is, is common sense, and it's the way that things must be, and it's just very logical. And when you realize that this is how turf grass uses nutrients, then it starts to make sense. Of course it makes sense that if we just supply nutrients like this in order to meet that amount of plant demand it's going to work and it's going to work really well. And, and it, it simplifies things and it's the nutrients the grass can use. So this is, this is not from MLSN, but it's quite, it's quite similar. It sounds almost the same as what we talk about. And th so this is from the document by Erickson et al. Some quotes, fertilization can be adapted based on the nitrogen requirement of the grass. That's because um, I'm going to intersperse their quotes with my um, uh, commentary. So, of course, with nitrogen requirement of the grass, the grass grows more or grows less. So, of course, we adapt the fertilization. Another quote, light and heat control the growth potential of grass. Of course, dormant turf doesn't require nutrients, obviously, if it's not growing. When photosynthesis is slower... There is a decrease in the growth capacity of grass and thus also in its nutrient requirement. This is starting to sound like growth potential. Nitrogen is the nutrient that grass plants require most. So I'm reading all these quotes that I've put in that blog post about two methods for two similar approaches to turf grass fertilization. But these are coming from the precision fertilization developed by STRF. But it, it sounds a lot like the things that we talk about with MLSN too. Here's another longer quote. By controlling the nitrogen concentration in the leaves through fertilization, the growth rate is also controlled. A growth rate corresponding to 60% of maximum growth is often sufficient to produce a surface with good playing qualities. However, if the turf needs to repair some form of damage, the growth rate needs to lie around the maximum capacity for a period, and therefore the nitrogen concentration also needs to be higher. Micah, Micah speaking again for commentary, not, not quoting, and this might sound familiar if you, if you have heard me talk about clipping volume or the importance of getting the growth rate just right. Another quote, an experienced greenkeeper can judge from the color of the grass whether the fertil 
whether the fertilization level is right or wrong. The amount of clippings produced also sends a clear signal about the nitrogen of the grass. Maybe that's a typo there on my part. Could be, it should be nitrogen content. I'll have to check that. Let me make a note. Another quote. When the growth capacity is reduced, the same argument applies when the cutting height of the turf is lowered before competitions. When the leaf area is reduced, the capacity of the grass to capture solar energy is also reduced. This decreases the growth capacity and the nutrient requirement in order to avoid changes in the growth potential of the grass above and below the ground and to maintain leaf structure and carbohydrate levels in the tissues. The fertilization intensity must be decreased. So um, that is the same type of thinking behind MLSN. So basically it's the same thing. It's, it's saying as the grass grows, all we have to do is supply nutrients that will meet the plant demand. Now, the precision fertilization approach of STRF, which I encourage you to read about, is like a, a very safe method. The way that it works is it essentially would say that the grass can't get any nutrients from the soil. The, the approach of precision fertilization is saying, we will supply nutrients based on the plant demand and the plant demand depends on the way that it's managed and on the weather and it assumes that no nutrients are available from the soil it assumes that one needs to apply fertilizer to supply all the nutrients the grass can use and it's not trying to hit crazy levels of potassium in the soil it's not trying to keep calcium at a absurd level in the soil in a sand root zone that doesn't have cation exchange capacity sufficient to hold that much calcium. It's just saying the expectation for turf grass nutrient use is this based on the species that we're working with and based on how much it can possibly grow based on the nitrogen supply. And that is the quantity of nutrient that should be applied. So the, if you, if you step back from that and look what's really happening, it's ignoring the soil, which basically makes the assumption that the soil can supply nothing and the precision fertilization approach will supply everything. With MLSN, we take it a step further. We're making that same calculation of how much is the grass growing? How much can the grass use? But now we also add on a soil test and we look with MLSN at the soil and we classify the, or we rank the soil basically as being ample in nutrients or in the bottom 10% of turf grass soils producing good turf for that particular nutrient. So what happens as you get closer to the MLSN value, as the nutrient drops down and down, I'll use potassium for an example, if potassium is at 100 parts per million in most places in the world, if, if the soil potassium is at 100 parts per million, in most places in the world, the grass won't grow enough in the year to use all that potassium. So I would say you, you probably don't need to apply potassium fertilizer this year. 
But if the soil test potassium is about 50 parts per million, in most places in the world, the grass will be growing enough that over the course of the growing season, we would expect the soil potassium to drop down from 50 to 49 to 45 to 40 to 30. And now the soil potassium gets lower and lower. Now it drops below the MLSN minimum for potassium. And what that means is you're in the bottom 10% of turf grass soils that are that uh, are producing good turf. So if, if you're at like 27 parts per million potassium or something, you're not just in the bottom 10%, you're probably in the bottom 7%. It doesn't mean you can't produce good turf with 27 parts per million potassium, but it's quite likely that your turf has a potential to be limited by potassium at that level. And so that's where it triggers a recommendation. Whereas with the stirf precision fertilization approach, you would get the same potassium fertilizer recommendation in soils that are at 27 parts per million, the same recommendation at 50 parts per million, and the same potassium recommendation at 100 parts per million. What, what that recommendation is, is 100% of potential plant use of potassium. So these are two similar approaches to fertilization to fertilization with one big difference being that MLSN looks at what's normal for turfgrass soils today, not what's normal for turfgrass soils in the 1960s or, or 1970s, not what's normal for lawn soils. It, it looks for professionally managed turf in low nutrient content uh, root zones like sports turf, uh, sand-based sand -based surfaces that have low cation exchange capacity. And then it makes a recommendation based on keeping you in the top 90% rather than in the bottom 10%. So that's, that's how it works, and it's pretty simple. And instead of trying to hit these numbers in the soil that are often unrealistic, and rather than coming up with recommendations that once you start working through the calculations, they can sometimes be absurd when you start saying, we, wait a second, we're going to apply uh, maybe five or 10 times more potassium than the grass can possibly use. What, what benefit is that going to have? Or for calcium, it might be 50 or 100 times more than the grass could possibly use. And of course, if, if you don't change the cation ex exchange capacity, you're not going to change the soil calcium levels either. So you end up just putting product that gets leached through, trying to hit some unrealistic targets. And MLSM was designed to fix that. STRF's precision fertilization approach fixes that also, but it could lead to some over-application, but it's a very minor over-application in some cases. So for people who don't like soil testing and they don't like MLSN, I suggest to them as an alternative, just do the precision fertilization approach, which turns out to be supplying 100% of plant use and you can't possibly go wrong. So I, I hope this makes sense and I hope that more and more people, if they have had some confusion about it, like John Jacob and, and Joe Galati were talking about, if they didn't understand where the recommendations are coming from, and 
honestly, I don't understand where some of those recommendations that he was getting are coming from either. I don't understand why um, people have over-applied. I think as an industry, when I was a golf course superintendent, I over-applied. It's just, it's what we did. Um, but I've always been interested in this, trying to to supply the grass with just what it needs. And that's why I was so lucky to work with Frank Rossi for at grad school uh, at Cornell. And Frank was interested in the same topic, and I was interested in this topic, and he had a opportunity for me to study about this. So I, I was very lucky to be able to study about this. And then working with Larry Stoll and Wendy Galerter from Pace Turf, we came up with the MLSN idea, and we continue working on that. And it it's just really cool that it does make sense that it works on grass all over the world, and that people are making good use of this. So that's one of the classic posts. I hope that you will read that about two methods for uh, turfgrass fertilization, and you kind of understand what the difference is, and understand that both of those methods are based on supplying 100% of plant use, except in the case of MLSN, it's based on 100% of plant use. But if we expect that the grass can get that expected use from the soil. If we think the grass can get the nutrients from the soil, that's going to adjust the fertilizer recommendation. So now instead of recommending that nutrient as fertilizer, we are going to let the grass use the excess nutrients in the soil. So that's how that works. And I um, have a wealth of information on the website. I, I think in the last episode, I said something like I had 400 posts on, on the blog to choose from. And if I did say that, it was a mistake. I have over 600 on the Asian Turfgrass website right now. And on the old version of the website, which I'm going to be moving over, there's an additional, uh, well, I'll move over the best content. There's 500 or, or 600 more posts over there. So it's pretty cool to be able to um, look up something that I've already written and be able to share that. And when it comes to the ATC Double Cut Show, it's pretty cool for me to not have to do any new posts this week. So I can work on the things that I'm excited about. Like I was saying, those uh, seasonal changes in soil nutrient levels or the, the way I'm trying to make a little bit more complicated and more accurate assessment of whether potassium fertilizer is required. So I can work on those kind of things uh, and I still can do a show and talk about one of my blog posts because I have hundreds of them. So that's uh, me feeling pretty glad about that. So I'll see you next time. I'm Micah Woods from Bangkok and I thank you for listening. Bye-bye.